this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Okay, before we begin today's episode, quick announcement. For weeks, we've been plugging Dana's new book, which is called Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Today's the day. It's out. She did it. She produced her book. It's available for purchase, and the Culture Gap Fest listeners can get a great deal on the audiobook edition of Cameraman, which is read by Dana herself. So please go to slate.com slash Dana. And there you'll be able to get the audiobook for just $13.99. That's $10 off the list price. Then you'll be able to listen to the audiobook in your preferred podcast app. There's no standalone app to download and no subscription fees. Please note also that this audiobook sale is brought to you by Slate. That means your purchase not only supports Dana, beloved Dana, it also helps support the important, distinctive Slate journalism that you depend on. This is a limited time sale, so don't just sit there. Go go ahead, go to slate.com slash Dana. Again, that's slate.com slash Dana. Okay, on to the show. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Fool's Gold Edition. It's Wednesday, January 26th, 2022. On today's show, from the creator of Downton Abbey comes The Gilded Age, a period drama about the very rich in and around New York at the end of the 19th century. And then, yes, it's true, he is the top-selling instrumentalist of all time and scourge of snobs everywhere. The TV show Music Box has a documentary on the saxophonist Kenny G. And finally... Old music, the classics of rock and roll, blues, classical, jazz, you name it. It now vastly outsells new music. What gives? We talk about an essay by Ted Joya. Joining me today is Nicole Perkins, poet, essayist, podcast host, uh, author of the memoir, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be, a lyric from my favorite Prince song, Nicole you're a newish friend of the program, but quickly becoming a, a, a VFOP, a venerable friend of the program. But uh, welcome back. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be back. Awesome. And of course, Willa Paskin is the uh, TV critic for Slate uh, and uh, hostess of Dakota Ring, the great podcast she makes with our, our, our old producer, Benjamin Frisch. Willa, welcome back to the show. Hi. Let me say also, uh, before we start, the reason Dana's not here today is today is her pub date. I mean, think about what it is to be the author of a book, right? From this tiny little gestational seed, as many as 20 years ago. You, don't, you never know when someone gets that first idea. That whole agonizing, lonely, and bitter, doubtful process <laughs> culminates in the book finally being a physical object, right? I mean, that's extraordinary in and of itself, but then it actually goes out to market and it finds readers the point of the whole exercise. Don't don't let that be. Don't let that be an anticlimax for Dana, beloved Dana Stevens. Please, please, please give this book a shot. Uh, she is on Fresh Air this week. You should check that out. And Mark Marin. So good on Dana. Uh, I think the book is doing well. Make it do better. Go ahead and purchase it. Cameraman Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema 
and the invention of the 20th century. Check it out. All right. Shall we make a show? Yeah, let's do it. Brilliant. Okay. Julian Fellows is the creator of Downton Abbey. He nursed for the better part of a decade an ambition to make a show about the Gilded Age, an American upstairs, downstairs, if you will. What's not to love? It's a great idea. It's the era of Edith Wharton and Henry James of huge industrial fortunes, grand estates, elaborate pseudo-aristocratic manners in the new world. Uh, It was in development at NBC, as I understand it, for years. It finally landed at HBO, and here it is. It's available uh, on your screens. It's lush, expensive-looking, and soapy. It's a melodrama pitting old money New York against the Arivistes. The first uh, is represented by the stodgy Van Ryan family, the latter by the upstart Russells. The Van Ryans, they're sort of Mayflower types. Their blood is blue, their money is ancient, but perhaps dwindling. The Russell patriarch, meanwhile, is a ruthless business tycoon, and his money is equally ruthless. It's vigorous and and brand new. Uh, And his wife desperately wants to achieve social standing to complement that wealth, but is finding, especially in the Van Rines, uh, a very cold shoulder indeed. Into the mix comes a poor niece, a provincial ingenue who's only just discovered how poor she really is, She's played by Louisa Jacobson, and along with her comes a young woman, an aspiring writer, whom she meets en route to New York City, uh, and she is black. She's played by Danae Benton. The show also stars Cynthia Nixon and Morgan Spector and Christine Baranski. Okay, in the clip we're about to hear, we're going to hear from the grand matriarch of the Van Ryan family, Agnes, played by Christine Baranski, who laments the arrival of these new fortunes. Now, you need to know, we only receive the old people in this house. Not the new. Never the new. What's the difference? The old have been in charge since before the revolution. They ruled, justly, until the new people invaded. It's not quite as simple as that. Yes, it is. Well, I'm new. I've only just arrived. Marion, never mind that the Brooks have been in Pennsylvania for a century and a half. My mother, your grandmother, a Livingston of Livingston Manor, and they came to this city in 1674. You belong to old New York, my dear, and don't let anyone tell you different. You are my niece, and you belong to old New York. All right, Willa, you're Slate's TV critic. Uh, I can't say that for all the anticipation accompanying this show, I can't say that it's been bathed in critical love thus far. You can soap it up a little here or what do you think no man i really i so i really um i have a real soft spot for masterpiece theater drawing room dramas like i would watch the bbc pride and prejudice at any time always you know like i really love that kind of thing and i really was enamored with the first season of downton abbey although became less enamored as um, the series went on so like i was I'm not expecting it to be great, you know, but I was like, this will be good for me. Like, I'll enjoy this. I thought it was so bad. (laughs) Firstly, I also just thought it didn't look good. Like, I, they just, it's just so obviously set on some weird back lot with a ton of CGI and everything's horribly clean, but that's just like a minor thing. It's like Edith Wharton and Henry James are such great Mm. source material to be Mm -hmm. messing around with. It's all right there, but almost like in sort of, existing in the Wharton cinematic universe without actually adapting an actual Wharton book. Everything just becomes so shallow and cliched. Like every single thing that's going to happen, you know exactly what's going to happen. It does proceed to happen. I just thought it was all of these great actors, like totally abandoned by a 
bunky script doesn't look as good as i wanted it to mm-hmm. i really just found it like just hugely disappointing <laughs> yeah. in every single way basically. yeah nicole yeah it, it doesn't i think will is just empirically on the first point totally right it just doesn't look great you feel as though you're you don't feel as though you're in opulent 19th century new york you feel as though you're in a network tv show almost immediately. it doesn't even look like hbo much less old new york uh what'd you make of it as a drama uh, yeah, I did not enjoy it at all. Um, and I, you know, I tried to keep giving it a chance. So I, you know, to make sure that I was being fair. Uh, but it did not, it did not look good. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh my God, the costumes, but the costumes look very 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, like you could see, I mean, obviously budget concerns, but you could see that they were, um, you know, kind of modern materials, uh, I guess you could say, are, are done in a, in a you know, uh, sewn and crafted in a modern way. Um, those kind of details were very obvious, I think, to me. Um, also, it just felt like, and sometimes this works, but it just really felt like a play. And mm. I think it was, um, especially... Um, George Russell, the character George Russell, played by Morgan Spector, the uh, the robber baron guy. He just seemed like he was on stage and everyone else was not. Like, I mean, he had a really great comportment. Like, I liked what he was doing, but I just felt like, I don't, I don't think you should be on TV. You should be <laughs> on stage someplace, which is not a diss to him. I think he was great, but it was also just... It just the way that he carried his voice, um, the things that he was doing with his voice just felt like he was in a different thing. So we are to bow down before a woman who has less money than me and less of absolutely everything than you. I'm only doing it for you and Larry and Gladys, of course. Of course. Also, I just I know, you know, writers have a certain theme that they go with throughout their whole body of works and and you know whatever and obviously directors and do the same and but I'm just like I just don't want this story anymore like what Mm -hmm. else is there um Bertha the wife who just wants to be included in upper society no matter what I just I don't I am so uninterested in in that um it just (laughs) there's so much like it feels like she kind of girl bossed a little too close to the sun as they say and I'm just like okay you know it's great that you have the fortune of marrying rich and you want to make sure that everybody knows that you are wealthy but like what else is there and I Mm. guess we should look at that as like there's only so much that women could do at that time but be catty about their money um but I just I am so not interested in seeing any more of this show <laughs> yeah and nicole i agree with you to to the word deep willa too i mean it's it's just terrible i mean it's so stagey i think you know yes morgan specter but i you know it, it but i thought kind of almost everyone had a profoundly non-cinematic uh method of self-presentation i felt like the blocking was stagey also there were just these odd what looked like stage crosses, the kind of thing that you never see on film. It just seemed amateur. That was the weirdest thing about it. But the disappointment is almost more revealing than the shoddiness of it, because this is really, I mean, it is rich, rich territory. We are in the middle of a second Gilded Age, uh, and the first one was one of the most sociologically rich periods of American life, right? Uh, um 
you know, you have, uh, as Willis says, these rich precedents in James and Wharton. They're not overly familiar to a television audience. I mean, they're sort of lurking in the background because there have been enough adaptations now. But there's a lot of rich stuff to mine there. Um, and you, of course, have the urtext in Thorsten Veblen, you know, theory of the leisure class. I mean, we are living through a... The, the, the resonances here are are important in a way. It should both bring you back to that extremely teeming, violent, contested, weird part of American history where gigantic, gigantic fortunes are laying the basis for the 20th century and how the 20th century will shape up and play out. And it should have a trenchancy to us now. It has it has so little of either. It's almost like they made an effort to sink it. It reads like the cliff notes to the cliff notes to the cliff notes of Wharton and James. It has no depth of characterization. It has no humor. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's odd. It's almost weirdly Willow like watching a high school production. Well, right? Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, it's strange. It's disorienting how bad it is, really. Yeah, and also like now that I've seen it, there is a fundamental disconnect with Julian Fellowes in particular taking this material on. Like obviously on the one hand, it seems so like a gimme, right? Like it's this very... Um, supposed to be this sort of, in his very opulent period with a lot of class striation. Like that's his, you know, that's his hunting ground. But the thing about Downton is that it's so conservative fundamentally. Like I think basically his position about status and class is so fundamentally conservative. Like mm. he's just so uh, historically interested in the idea that like people have their place and there's you know, sustenance and satisfaction to be found in that, that he's telling this story um, about like, you know, Aravistes, where, where sort of like it's almost as if, as dull as it is, Nichols, right? Like you have to side with the Aravistes, right? Like the old money mm -hmm. is just so stodgy and like wrongheaded. And also this is so like, you know, in America, like money should buy you anything you want you know, like there's there's all these sort of ideas that I just am not actually sure he's interested in exploring and like a like I just don't know that he has interesting or controversial or like even not even controversial sort of like provocative ideas about class so like mm. the whole thing is just very flat because he sort of can't animate the sort of what's at play and the ambitions here because I just sort of fundamentally think he's think like he's just pro aristocracy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you right. know what I mean? Like, right. like deeply and profoundly. And so in a show that's about like the aristocracy being upended, that may also in fact be about like how gross and horrible it is to remake that aristocracy over like, or to buy your way into just doing, you know, what rich people have been doing forever. Like he just kind of can't be critical of that. I was also really uninterested in the story of Peggy because it's like, okay, we've got, you're one black woman here um, and conveniently she has beef with her family. So we don't really get to see too many more black people around her. Uh, so we have to figure out how she's going to navigate this white world and why she would rather be in this particular world than with her family. And I just feel like that was a cheap way of not having too many black people on screen at a time and of like stepping outside of this wealthy environment that uh fellows kind of wants to live in uh it just i was just it's like there has to be something more here right. like i need something n new and different and there really wasn't in the story of peggy right. beyond her career aspirations 
you know, there's sort of three data points here now, the major data points with Fellows and his preoccupations with class, inherited station, and 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 meritocratic ambition, right, roughly speaking. The first is Gosford Park, which to my mind is the best thing he's ever done. You know, Altman directed it, but Fellows wrote it. And I, I thought there was a balance in that movie trying to understand how at a certain moment, meritocracy, for lack of a better word, is emerging out of a more feudal or the last remnants of a feudal way of looking at the world. I think that's incredibly interesting. In Downton, he tried to sort of have it both ways and say, this is a meditation on the emergence of meritocratic modernity in the 20th century, but also aren't the costumes, like, wouldn't you love to live in a big manor? I mean, it had that kind of vicarious thrill of the manor house and the fancy costumes and the upper crusty accents. And I think it hit a kind of sweet spot between a somewhat serious contemplation and a commercial bonanza. And here it's just, it's like lost completely, even though he had an interesting place to go, which is that America was never a feudal society, right? I mean, it was obviously... It was but that's a, what it, throws him, right? Like, right, that that's is what, exactly. what's throwing him. He kind of can't do America. He can't, like. do, he can't do America. He doesn't know that here the curious thing is, well... You know, I mean, let's first acknowledge that though we weren't a feudal society, we were a slave society. And and what's interesting about this period in American history is that it's the it's the first post-slave economy, uh, you know, f- formally, you know, a po- emancipated uh, economy that the country ever had. And so nostalgia in America for the way it used to be is bound up in, you know, uh, 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 white supremacist hierarchies that we should feel zero nostalgia for. But he doesn't even really, he doesn't really even reckon with that. But setting that aside just for one second, he's trying at least to reckon with something that's interesting, which is that if you don't have a feudal past, if you have no tradition, is it somehow noble to have people who want to establish traditions, rituals, a sense of permanency, institutions? I mean, these, you know, these are interesting questions. And a lot of these, I mean, I, like anyone else, I hate, uh, I hate the first Gilded Age and partially through the prism of the second Gilded Age. I mean, I hate what's happened to our country in terms of inequality. But the thing about the robber barons in the first Gilded Age is they were the great philanthropists who did lay the foundations for the nonprofit universe of the 20th century. So it's this mixed thing of like, can you build something permanent out of a new fortune? These are fascinating questions. And instead, this is the sh- absolutely shallowest variation on them. There's so much there about Americans, even though this term came much later, obviously, but this idea you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but then also, why don't you have bootstraps already? What's wrong Mm. with you? What's wrong with your people? Why, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And there's so much there that could be explored um, that is not (laughs) in in this show. Uh, And it just gets reduced down to you know, what if this were dynasty, but 19th yes, century? Exactly. And it would be slightly better if it actually just went with that, right? Like, if it just <laughs> was fun. But it's also, in addition to being, like, intellectually vacuous, mm-hmm. yeah. is ponderous and mm-hmm. predictable. Okay, right? so we've got... It made me miss Bridgerton. <laughs> I, I watched it, and I was like, <laughs> oh my God, me. at least have a lot of sex. Like, just do something <laughs> fun, something. you know? Like, yeah, I, I was like, where is season two of Bridgerton? Like, this, it was like, if we're going to be on this level, like, let's... Like have a good time with it. Yeah, okay. I mean, so the panel converges. I think I can sum it up. It's unfun, vacuous, looks awful, and so far, pretty much sexless. All right, Gilded Age, check it out. <laughs> or <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's on HBO. Uh, shall we move on? Yeah. 
This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we discuss business. Our first item is to remind listeners about a live event we're doing at the Strand Bookstore in New York City on February 3rd. As you all know by now, Dana's book about Buster Keaton is coming out. It's actually today is her pub date. And uh, so too is Isaac Butler's book about method acting, a history of method acting called The Method. That one's coming out next week, as I understand it. Isaac, of course, is a very, very good friend of this program. Anyway, we're doing a joint book event at The Strand, moderated by me. So if you're in the New York City area, you can buy a ticket to the event, and we'll put a link uh, in the show notes for that. If you can't make it to the show, don't worry. We are going to record it and release it as a Culture Gap Fest episode. But we'd love to see you there. Check it out either way. Second item of business is uh, today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to respond to an email from a listener named Steve. He writes, quote, is there a piece of culture that when you first experienced it failed to make an impression or you didn't like at all, but stayed with you as time passed and you continue to think about it, maybe like it more? Conversely, is there something you initially liked but slow burned into disliking? I do think that's a great question. Check out our conversation about it. Uh, it's for Slate Plus members and we'll tackle it later in the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, what's what's going on? What's up? We need to talk please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. It's only $1 for your first month. And for that dollar, you'll get ad-free podcasts, lots of bonus content like the Slate Plus segment that I just mentioned. You'll also get to hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. And members get unlimited access to all the great writing on slate.com. You will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. I should also mention that you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are very, very important to Slate. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, moving on. Okay, well, in the 1980s, Kenneth Gorlick transformed himself from a high school band nerd uh, living in Seattle into Kenny G, to the biggest selling instrumental artist of all time. Kenny G, he typically plays a soprano sax, that's the not curved linear one with notes in the upper register, uh, and he plays it larded up with echo effects. Uh, Doing so, he more or less created a new genre, smooth jazz. He fused easy listening R&B grooves with long noodling solos on the way to selling 75 million records. But the cognoscenti, the music snobs, they absolutely hate him. Well, the filmmaker Penny Lane has found a very interesting way into that dichotomy. 
In her documentary, Music Box, Listening to Kenny G, Lane gives equal time and respect to both the snobs and to the man himself. She's playing gotcha with neither. What emerges out of the documentary is a fetching portrait of a seemingly very well-adjusted and I would say likable man doing the very thing he loves most and making a ton of money while doing it, and of the people who have thought seriously about the relationship of art to taste whether or not they revile his music. Let's listen to a clip. <laughs> when you hear that word easy listening, it almost sounds bad. Like, well, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with something that's easy to listen to. But that said, I'm not writing music so it's easy to listen to. I'm writing music that just appeals to me. These are songs from my heart. This is the way I just hear it. The fact that what appeals to me also appeals to other people, that's the beautiful thing. Most of the music critics are not kind to me because most of the music critics aren't happy with my style of jazz. They think I've decided to play these kind of songs because I knew they would sell well and I could get rich and famous. If only I was that smart. Hmm. Nicole, let me start with you. I mean, you know, he comes off quite likable there. You know, we're critics, we're a panel of critics. It's our job <laughs> to say what we like and, and make a case for or against, on and on and on. Artists, even when they aren't savaged by critics, somewhat defensively in my estimation, often just revile critics as a class of human beings. I understand why. They make, we judge, you know, why should there be any amity between the two? I think one of the real and I, I think genuinely lovely surprises of this documentary is the, the, the total lack of bitterness or animus on the part of of uh, Kenneth Gorla, Kenny G, when it comes to the fact that critics hate him. He's quite magnanimous about it. What would you make of this, Joe? I don't really care for Kenny G's music, and I haven't <laughs> since I first, <laughs> you know, recognized it for what, for, you know, as belonging to him. And at some point in my adulthood, I did stop and think to myself, why is it that I don't like Kenny G? Because I did start to feel bad that he had become this joke um, because he's obviously very talented and I would never take that away from him. And I think this documentary helped helped me place that. Um, one of the critics said that this is not sex, this is masturbation. Mm -hmm. And they brought up the call and response history of jazz. Part of what makes jazz interesting is this sense of call and response and dialogue among musicians. And what you hear in Kenny G's music is no conversation at all. This is a solo project. This is not sex. This is masturbation. Kenny G is very much a solo person in his music, in his creation, in the way he executes it. And I think when you are listening to it, it creates a space of emptiness. Um, when I say emptiness, I mean just like you're not listening to it to, you know, to make sense of your own emotions or to have some sort of catharsis. You're just kind of listening to it to be blank and empty. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, that, that um, someone else talked about being in the dentist's office, right? where it's just there so that you can just get through whatever's about to happen. And there doesn't feel like there's much, uh, this is so, this is one of those terms that doesn't mean anything, but does, there's no soul to it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's like, I don't know, like, is this a song that he made when he was happy? Is it a song that he made when he was sad? Is it a song that he made when he was going through heartbreak? Like, I don't have any clear indications when I listen to his music, as opposed to, 
other jazz, other more traditional jazz or other, you know, like the foundation of what he's working with, you can hear those kinds of things happening with the musicians or the, like the, the feeling they hope to evoke. And I think Kenny G is just, I'm a good musician here. Hmm. And that is what pulls me away from his music. But I thought the documentary itself did a really good job of placing that for me. And maybe it would help other, uh, other viewers also kind of parse through their feelings about Kenny G. Yeah. Um, Will, it's good that we have you on the panel today because I know you are a huge Kenny G fan. <laughs> are you joking? If are you, you could, joking? Are you impugning me? If you could go <laughs> ahead and just just tell us why he's up there with, I mean, yes, Coltrane, well, yes, Miles, well, but really Bach, Brahms, and, and Mozart. Well, you know, it's so funny because the documentary is situated in this moment, right? Like 20 years after critics were absolutely losing their minds about Kenny G. Like there's there's a you know, the documentary takes a lot of time to refer specifically to this really vitriolic letter one critic had written about Kenny G. I mean, people are just impassioned about how mediocre he is. Um, and we're now in this moment, uh, you know, an anti-snob moment. So that's sort of like the framework of of the documentary, which is like, oh, what was going on that this, you know, I think, Nicole, your description of it is totally right. But what was going on that this like sort of vacuous, but genuinely easy listening, kind of like willfully inoffensive music, like the popularity of it drove people to absolute distraction, right? Like it may not be good, but is it really so bad? And why did that, why did its popularity, you know, why did millions and millions of people liking something that's mediocre, like no surprise, (laughs) that's just like, that's par for the course and like the history of entertainment. Like, why did that, did people find that so offensive? And like, and I think that that's a great and interesting question. And I actually like want to revisit it in like 10 or 15 years again, when we're maybe somewhere between these pendulum swings of like knee jerk, snobbery and like knee jerk everything is fine there's no such thing <laughs> like like what you like um yeah i mean i think the documentary sort of actually took us took a more middle position i don't think it's really making the case for kenny g as like a, a you know a fabulous musician but i thought there was lots of really good and interesting things in about it like the fact that his song coming home is like literally played every day oh, all over china for people to go home to like <laughs> incredible incredible detail like and also just a really different way of thinking about what music you know i think in america amuse and and not just america sort of in the you know british this tradition of rock and roll like music is supposed to be rebellious i mean that's you see that like that you know rock and roll may be dead but that spirit is in hip-hop too you know like it's supposed to be the cry of like authentic not necessarily anguish, but actual feeling and emotion. And what if you had a different idea that sometimes music just serves this functionality of like, mm. nice thing to tell you at the end of the day. But I would say that, you know, the one thing you, you mentioned at the beginning, like that he comes across as charismatic and he is fascinating and impervious almost. Like yeah. on the one hand, it's so great that he's not totally um, embittered about the critics, but he does sort of like stealthily come across as like a kind of really intense type A competitive, very self-satisfied fellow. I mean, just like even the way he's like obsessively playing golf or like going to revive these dead jazz artists to play alongside of him that he's never thought about the fact that like he's a white guy who got really famous in the jazz, like just, just a sort of like willful and, and genuinely like up, buoyant cheery just like absolute 
Right. Like imperviousness, cluelessness to to sort of like onboarding the negativity. And and that's to me what made that documentary where you're just like, what a great main character, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And, 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 and it, 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 right. And it rides that it rides that ambiguous question when it comes to sort of totally cloudless human beings, which is the, the genuine, genuinely genial, the, the sunshine really go all the way down. How terrifying is that to begin with? But also, what is it hiding? What is it evading? Are they actually sinister? I mean, I, I'm alert to that in, in people who have that because I'm the opposite, but I, I never, I never hit that note with him. I mean, I, he's, he's, he is type A. He's a perfectionist. If he does something, he wants to completely master it. Uh, I I did, just couldn't f- I couldn't find him abrasive over the course of it for whatever reason. I also, totally but like there's that part yeah. where he's like, "I'm the best dad in the world." Like, no, he just I know. like is I know. just like where I know, he's like, but, "Okay, buddy." <laughs> yep. I mean, listen, and you'd want to hear from those kids or, the, or you know or their therapist and 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 have it confirmed or not. But that said, in the context of this documentary. I was shocked by how uh, uh, how appealingly conscience-free he is, but sort of willing to be thoughtful when provoked. And I don't know. I mean, I guess what I would say is that, yes, it's a saxophone, and yes, it's instrumental, just don't call it jazz, is where <laughs> the rubber sort of hits the road, right? When When you invoke jazz it means something in particular it's a very specific musical musical and cultural tradition with very deep roots in this country and in uh black experience in particular and he both is taking the name and cutting himself off completely from that tradition um i think it's at least worth raising the question why if this is kind of a semi-official or maybe even official music of the communist party why it functions so well both in that context and in malls and public spaces in the United States. I mean, there's something anodyne, like there's something, you know, nerve calming, superficially nerve calming. I mean, it would drive me to the funny farm, but there, there is a way in which kind of a gentle feeling of compliance is the, is, is what emerges out of this music. Right. This music, there, it does not, um, there's no finger popping. There's no head mm-hmm. bobbing. There's no shoulder shimmying. When you listen to this music, it's not going to rile you up physically. You're just going to go about your business. And the, you know, this idea of oral wallpaper is perfect because it's like you notice it, oh, pretty colors. And then you just kind of blank about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I can't, I feel bad for saying that because you can tell that he is very good at what he's doing, but it is a, it is very practiced and obviously it should be, but it is like, I, there's no deviation. Um, and he does not make room for the idea that anything could happen, which is what jazz and blues is all about right like this is my life things are terrible and i've got to make the best out of it so i'm going to give you this song and kenny g doesn't have that uh and i think part of the reason he's so uh impervious to so much of the criticism is probably because he's used to being bullied and picked on you know we Mm. see these pictures of him as the nerdy white guy with the with a curly fro and how, you know, he's always looked out of place no matter where he is, no matter what he's doing throughout his life. And he's probably had to just kind of embrace that and like create this armor about himself with perfectionism. And 
you know, that's what works for him. Um, but I think it, it does create, um, it does a disservice to the history of jazz uh, itself. Mm. But you know, the thing about the documentary is I think it sort of, like there are people who got married to those songs. They talk about people having sex to them. Like there is people to who those songs are meaningful. And the problem is that we have sort of like, we don't right now have like a language or like a, a, not even a language, just like a will to just be like, I'm so sorry you liked that. It's still shitty. Like that's the line that the documentary is riding. And like it, that is like, that is sort of like Kenny G. I think the music is sort of, to so many people feel so that like, I'm sorry, it's just shitty that like he, he kind of makes you address those questions in a way that I think like we have sort of, we don't want to be making that, those kind of determinations for lots of good reasons. And also some, you know, mostly for good reasons, but some other, you know, and so, so it's like, we can't, we can't impugn him on the grounds that like nobody really likes it because I think people, oh, yeah. some people with bad taste really, really do. And yeah. like, and that's yeah. their genuine taste. Like right. I mean, Kenny G is, I just read, you know, the, the critic, the great critic who just died, Dave Hickey he has this piece where he talks about bad taste is real taste and good taste is just like your imputation of somebody else's taste. And that really stuck with me because I think it's very hard actually to have genuine bad taste now because everything is mediated. Mm -hmm. And Kenny G is actually this thing that's like, Oh, if you like Kenny G, like you're not doing something, <laughs> you, know? like, mm -hmm. you just like him. Like it's, there's something pure about that. It's corny and bad, oh, yeah. but it's like, and, and so it's like, how do we recognize that? And just be like, also like, by the way, it's bad. I don't know. Mm -hmm. like, like what you like, but don't expect us to say it's good. Yeah. And I think the other thing just that's really like charming about him basically is he just embodies like that's what the money is for? Like I just think we talk <laughs> about celebrities all the time, and we're like, "You're whining. Everything's fine. You're rich and famous. Please, why are you re why are you so bent out of shape about one critic like writing something about your album? Like get a life. You you ha go go back to your pool. You know, like we just and obviously that's not fair either. Like we're all human. You know, you put your stuff out there, it hurts. But like he just seems to be like, no, it's cool. I worked this out. I made a lot of money. I sold a lot of records. Like, I don't need that. And that, I think there is something slightly aspirational right. about and, that. It's uh, like, right. <laughs> right. And also it's like, there's not a, there's no, there's no sunlight between his taste and his audience's taste. Right. That's kind of the, the thing you encounter over and over again when you push on things like the Da Vinci Code or Kenny G or whatever is that the creator actually isn't secretly a snob and therefore a cynic, you know, doesn't really know better. And, you know, has, has, a, you know, I mean, they kind of, they, that they are able to mind meld with their audience in a kind of cynicism free way, I suspect. And that's the key, that, that kind of success is harder to begrudge in some sense. He clearly loves what he's doing too. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's Music Box, listening to Kenny G on HBO. Check it out. And Watch it instead email. of The Gilded Age. <laughs> yes. It's, I, I think it's, I mean, I haven't probably pounded the table. I think it's a terrific documentary. I was very grateful to watch it. So check it out. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Okay, uh, the essayist and musician Ted Joya has written a substack. It's pegged to an ad- admittedly quite startling fact. I was surprised to read this. Old songs now represent 70% of the market in music uh, currently. Meanwhile, in absolute terms, the market for new music is shrinking. Joya, I think, correctly wants to explore this fact. He's He's alarmed by it. Um, just consider these facts, he writes. The 200 most popular tracks now account for less than 5% of total streams. It was twice that rate just three years ago, and the mix of songs actually purchased by consumers is even more tilted to older music. The current list of most downloaded tracks on iTunes is filled with the names of bands from the last century, such as Creedence Clearwater and The Police. Uh, Will, I'll start with you. Uh, Ted Joya seems uh, unsettled by this fact and and, uh, regretful in a way. Um, Are you? So on the one hand, I actually think that the accessibility of old stuff is like a great thing about now. But I take the point um, that the old stuff that people are finding is not like esoteric or interest, like, or obscure or wide ranging. It's like, you know, um, dad rock. Like, I I mean, good (laughs) classic dad rock. And, And one of the things that I just was wondered personally is like, I just wonder a lot also like how much of this is algorithm stuff because I, my, one of my children who's very little has become obsessed with free falling, the song free falling. I don't know how it happened. We played a lot, and so it's it's like the song on the Spotify playlist. And what I've just noticed about this, or like if, a, if you play a rumor song, you know, is it never leads you to new music. Like there's all these acts and bands. I mean, this is so these are all like you know white folk, ba- whatever poppy acts. But like there's all these acts that are contemporary that like you could play me some ham if I'm like listening to a Stevie Nicks thing, and it doesn't do that. It's very very like chronologically bound, and like. If if what is happening a little bit is that like the way people are listening to music now is like in general, we're being led by these algorithmically generated playlists. If it's all sort of like music in the background, if it's music to work to, to study to, which I think, I mean, I'm sure that's not all that's happening, but I think is a piece of what's happening. Like how much is it that they don't want you to hear new music? Like, do they have to pay more for, you know, I just like what is actually happening mm. behind the scenes. That that's a little far afield, but it made me wonder. Like, there's no reason we shouldn't be getting more of everything. So I think one of the things that the piece um, does not touch on is this idea of how we are consuming um, pop culture, movies, and TVs. And like, there are a lot of 
historical and period pieces right now because you know it's always just really cool to look at the costuming but also I think it's a way to get out get around the cell phone conundrum right like you know if someone's in trouble why don't they just call somebody you know right Mm -hmm. so um and so as people are watching these and they're hearing the music of the time in these soundtracks then they go and they find it on TikTok and then they create a little video or something like that, right? You know, like we saw what happened with Fleetwood Mac, you know, from a TikTok video and and these kinds of things. I think that's part of what's going on is that we are uh, exposed to older music in different ways now. But I think it's really interesting what kind of music, like Willa just mentioned, is getting uh, considered, you know, popular uh at this point it is this kind of dad rock which again i think speaks to who's making the movies and tv shows that we're hearing these songs on um which still like a lot of older white men um making these movies and shows and and giving us their childhoods um so i think all of that is is connected but also we're listening to music and headphones and we want the music to sound really good and new music does not sound good. <laughs> hmm. um, it's, you know, like once you are in, if you have really good headphones, the new music is overproduced. It sounds very tinny. It is, it's too sterile. But when you listen to these older um, bands and uh, older musicians, you hear vocal arrangements, you hear live instrumentation, you hear like the, I don't know, somebody's uh the drum you know the the pedal of the drum and things like that so those things are very pleasing especially in this asmr world that people have have come to uh navigate you want to hear these like little real live hiccups uh in in your ear and new music doesn't really do that because it is so perfect um and i think that is also part of why we're getting we're hearing more old music come to the foreground it's like Mm. it just sounds better I mean, this is the other thing is like the lived experience of now is not like the like there is not no new music, right? Like there is still a lot of new music and it surrounds us. But I mean, I think he talks about radio play, like even sort of a lot of new songs being less introduced. But this also is like this sort of reminds me of the other thing. It's not just period dramas and and stuff is like the office and friends and Seinfeld Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. the thing that's happening where we have all these new TV shows and it's all anyone's talking about but actually the thing that's driving like the most popular shows on Netflix are old sitcoms Mm -hmm. you know like or if you're gonna like there's all these movies but I don't like I know what I do at night when I'm flipping around and like I'm watching some movie from I've seen before that like stars has and it's like playing on TV like there's just a lot Mm -hmm. like like this access to this giant back catalog is not just germane to music and I, I just wonder if it's not like if it's maybe not a cause for panic, it's just a sort of like reshuffling and like it's not like we're going to be done with new things. I just found this argument, I found the facts intriguing, but the implications that that, uh, Joya and conclusions he draws from them is extremely dubious. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, it stands to reason when a culture fragments uh, in general and then listening habits become solitary that, where taste aggregates is going to be somewhat anachronistic, right? You're going to have this older, less adapted group of people for whom the ideal of a unified culture is extremely seductive still. And they want, and it reminds me of the Kenny G documentary as well, 
it's not just that isn't it funny that there are snobs and populist lowbrows and the populist lowbrows love Kenny G and the snobs hate Kenny G. You could also say, well, wasn't it remarkable that there was a time when jazz was the biggest selling music in America? And, you know, a certain kind of critic understood why that was an extraordinary thing. And um, to be a snob about it was to be an aesthetic idiot. You know, wasn't it amazing when, you know, the Beatles were the most popular thing on the planet, but also the most, in their way, kind of weirdly avant-garde and unexpected and, and quite orally challenging thing. And so I understand the impulse to say, wouldn't it be great if we all listened to the same thing and the critics adored it and helped us make sense of how wonderful it was. But that's, you know, you have golden ages and then you have after the golden ages, right? You can't go to fourth century Athens and say, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there, there's just this, this, this kind of inexplicable kismet by which all these forces come together and then they blow apart and you're going to have Herodotus, Thucydides, Euripides, Socrates, all living within 50 or 80 years of one another. And similarly, I I really believe we went through that in America in the 20th century when we were cultural hegemons. We We weren't overly burdened by traditional forms. So technological change, social change, modernity didn't ace us out and we were able to produce super idiosyncratic, individualistic, artistically expressive work in an industrial context in the way that Europeans and others couldn't. And um, we may be just running on the fumes of that right now. (laughs) I don't want to be so heady, but I do just want to say that like the other thing is, and you mentioned this, is like one of the things that he also cites like the Super Bowl statistic, like the Super Bowl halftime show, like who the acts playing it have gotten yeah. older and older. It's like, yeah. as the culture does fragment, the people that are superstars, yeah. like they they stay load stars and relevant for longer because we Much actually just longer. make less of them. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. to say there aren't any of them, but th- there is that, you know, like there's Beyonce, like there's Justin Timberlake, you know, like there's these, there's but those people aren't even particularly young anymore. Do you know what I mean? There's Ariana Grande, like there's Justin Bieber, but it's just like, it's very, it's, it's much less. And there's just like this whole, it's just a, it's from we, we are inheriting still and like these older icons because we just make sort of fewer of them in this specific way, you know, and that's just that's like you can see that in like the tabloid coverage of the celebrities who were famous 20 years ago, too. You know, that's like why Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston are still on the cover of magazines. It's like they're just. Yeah, they're still famous. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole, th- this makes me want to ask you about something that f- fascinates me and I'd love to hear you speak to it, which is, you know, I'm presumably I'm older than the other members of this panel. I mean, I, you know, if you had told me when I was your age or, or when I was a kid, we would arrive at a time where the Hollywood movie and popular music are no, are no longer these juggernaut superstar minting culturally cohesion making forces in American life. I would have said that's, 200 years after I'm dead. And yet here we are. They don't <laughs> occupy. Movie stars simply don't occupy and and whatever you want to call them, pop stars, rock stars, you know, they do not occupy the same utterly central place. The pedestal's not as high. I mean, does this ring a bell and if do you have any sense of of why or what it might mean? You know, I have been thinking about uh, YouTubers and TikTokers, right? And how they are celebrities now. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the context of like old music versus new music, I think about what gets 
shared, what becomes viral uh, on platforms like TikTok. And, you know, I think about the sea shanty moment that was <laughs> was happening. Right. And I think about um, people are trying to find community through yeah. music. And I think I think it's just the music that we have today uh, again, it's just very solo, you know, where mm-hmm. people are in their studio. And this is not just a result of the pandemic. Even before that, we would hear people who would talk about, oh, I recorded this song by myself in my studio. And then I just sent my verse, you know, I just sent uh, the track off to somebody else and then they added in someone else. And so we don't have that when there's two people on a song, we don't have them really speaking to each other because they're already pre-recorded and somebody has just kind of stitched them together. So we lose that connection between the piece and people aren't feeding off of each other in the same way. And the music industry doesn't want to pay for, you know, they don't want to pay for a choir. They don't want to pay for someone to come in and do the vocal arrangements. They don't, they're very cheap because they want to give all the money to the executives, uh, from what I understand, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a lot of different industries, right? But uh, so we lose that full-bodied sound. And I I don't know. I just think um, that is all part of the old music versus new music thing that's that's going on. And I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with old music is better. <laughs> ha, I, a good place to end it, but I, this is one of those things I imagine we can generate a lot of, uh, a lot of emails on. And, um, it's just a, it's just a fascinating question. I wonder what our listeners listening habits are when it comes to music. So shoot us an email. All right, moving on. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Willa, what do you have? So I have a, an ambivalent endorsement, which is to say I am really enjoying it, but I think it's really flawed, but in very interesting ways. And it's this podcast called Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Um, it's part of a, there was an earlier series, it was called Once Upon a Time in the Valley that was about Tracy Lords. And this one is um, about sort of Bennington College in the early 80s and specifically this moment when Brett Easton Ellis and Donna Tartt and Jonathan Lethem were all... Uh, students and and proceeded to write a bunch of novels uh and it's hosted by this vanity fair i mean it's narrated and reported and completely done by um lily analek who is a writer who um had done a oral history of bennington college um i think for esquire and and sort of in that reporting uh decided there was a podcast in it and it has obsessively reported it i mean it's 14 episodes long which i am telling you is long but the thing about it is it's very like dishy and gossipy and it's sort of completely constantly is conflating. <laughs> like it sort of takes as its premise that the things that actually happened at Bennington are essentially like the fact first run of the novels that would come later. And that those novels are essentially particularly the secret history and, um, Brett Easton Ellis is less than zero and rules of attraction are like, barely fictive i mean or that or that all the characters they're based on are like plucked right from life right from life which is a you know 
this is a common thought about artists now and it's a complicated and probably totally bogus thought. But but the thing about the podcast is I'm really enjoying it. And the part mm-hmm. of the reason is that Lily is the is she's like it's almost like she I don't even know quite how on purpose it is, but she's so flawed as a narrator, but so open about those flaws that there's something almost like it's the first podcast I've ever heard where it's like there is an unreliable authorial presence in the narration. Like, like it is the person telling you the story is, has so many quirks and you're constantly yelling at her, but like it, it cumulatively is a little bit like reading a novel with a really strong voicey narrator who is, you know, who you, you sometimes have that sort of argument with. So it's full of like all these fun dishy, like facts about their sex lives and literally like, so many details about who said what about whom and who had lunch with whom. I mean, all of it. It's pretty delightful. They made these good books. And then also like you're in this constant, like kind of eye roll, but also like it just really wouldn't work without her (laughs) state of mind. And I actually do endorse it. (laughs) So I've been really enjoying it. But that was, yeah, that that was such a great journey <laughs> that you took us on. <laughs> I love the ambivalent endorsement, but you worked out your feelings I think, <laughs> a- admirably. Uh, Nicole, what uh, what do you have? Uh, okay, I have a book that's um, a little older. It, um, it's called Vampires in the Lemon Grove and Other Stories, uh, and it's by Karen Russell, and it came out in 2013. And it's one of my favorite short story collections uh, because it's a little... Every, you know, it's a little dark. It's, there's got um, some Southern Gothic elements uh, throughout the different stories. Uh, there's always something a little fantastical, a little horrifying, uh, a little scary in each of the stories. And it's also very witty um, and sharp. Uh, so there's humor laced in with all the sinister stuff that's going on. The first story um, is the title story, Vampires in the Lemon, in the Lemon Grove. And it is about these two um, older vampires who live in Sorrento, Italy, and they have found that the lemons there are uh, able to satiate their bloodthirst, right? Um, But do the lemons keep them from uh, biting? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You, you, you know, it's kind of you kind of got to go with it. Um, But it's really, it's really fun and creepy and good uh and i love karen russell's work overall but i am, have been recently going through this book again and i just want to make sure it gets uh, a little bit more love this time around so vampires in the lemon grove and other stories by karen russell that sounds very cool okay so i'm gonna my endorsement is a kind of response to one or two of the segments that we did today i mean i think there was a time when a critic felt empowered to speak on behalf of others or or to tell them what they ought to think. And I say good riddance to that. Nonetheless, I think there's room for a criticism that's impassioned about things that the critic loves and the burden that the critic bears. Anyway, I've come across a work of criticism uh, by Ian MacDonald, the late uh, music critic and musician. He was English and uh, who wrote the, I think, definitive book about the Beatles, Revolution in the Head, which I can't recommend highly enough. I just stumbled across his essay on Nick Drake. And Drake is such a, I mean, he's such an interesting case because he failed completely. I mean, sort of the Van Gogh of of folk music in a way. I mean, he fit, I mean, there are many of those, by the way, but but, uh, in the sense that posthumously he triumphed while kind of selling no records in his own lifetime. 
And, um, you know, he, he, he Drake, what I love about the McDonald essay is that he gets at this quality that's so unique to Drake and a certain subset of artists of being a little too good for our world, which is a very dangerous road to hoe. Um, you know, you're in danger of becoming so ethereal, so refined out of your own sort of earthly existence that you're inhuman and kind of vaguely hateful in a sense. Um, And I don't think that's what Drake is, but he he rides this line between, between being, you know, a sort of, you know, stranded in, stranded in a fallen world with a, with a lushness and, and, and just the kind of romantic lushness that I think almost anybody could swoon to. And McDonald's just gets at that so beautifully in the essay. And it's just, to me, a paragon of good criticism writing where it's, he addresses why Drake couldn't catch on in his own lifetime and why he has since. I mean, the big reason is that I think Volkswagen used Pink Moon in a TV ad and finally a lot of people heard the song um, and liked it. But, uh, but, you know, he also knew Drake a little bit and the, and the, and the up close, you know, biographical vignettes in it are, uh, deeply affecting. Uh, I just think it's a lovely, lovely, lovely piece of writing and I can't recommend it highly enough, whether you like Drake or not. It's just interesting, you know, to hear someone write with that degree of sensitivity about some of anything really, you know, um, at all carburetors. I mean, you know, I mean, really, honestly, the right writer and the right subject produce something astonishing. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the show again. That was that was really fun. Please come back soon. Of course, always. And uh, Willa, of course, your uh, dear old friend of the program, Dofop. Uh, thank you for coming back on. That was that was great. Great talking. It was fun. You will find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. The introductory music to this podcast is by the wonderful Nick Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Nicole Perkins and Willa Paskin, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.